electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour after stocks ripped, then dipped, then came all the way back. What happens now to the rally, especially as earnings season gets set to kick off? We debate that with the investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, Jason Snipes, Steve Weiss, Josh Brown. Let's check the markets. Just past 12 noon in the east. We're red across the board, uh, and the Dow is now down uh, by a little more than 200 points. Uh, We are pacing for the first positive week in four. We're watching rates closely today as they tick higher. Stocks seem to move lower, and that certainly appears to be the case as we come on the air uh, right here. So, so Bryn, right, we, we put these couple great days together. We take a dip back yesterday. We, we try and rally back. Now we're moving lower. Is it as simple as rates? Does, it, do, does a move up in rates just prevent you from being as otherwise bullish as you might be? That's definitely part of the story. I think we have to watch the two-year. You know, the 10-year at 380. I do think the 10-year will be in a range between 350 and 4%. So as it comes down towards 350, that gives a little bit of a win to equities. And as it goes higher to four, that's that's going to be a headwind. I do think, though, as I think through all of the different things that, that we are obsessing over every day, like the Fed rhetoric, that we're going into a recession, there's a, a litany of things we can go through. Those are all priced in, though. And I do think that with the jolts data that came out, if we can get some other readings that the Fed is looking at, like a PCE or CPI moving in the right direction and earnings are stronger than the markets perceive, I do think we could continue to get a technical rally upwards to that 3,900. But make no mistake, we are clearly in a bear market and we continue to make lower highs and lower lows. So I think you can trade up to 3,900, keep your stops tight, but I do not think we see a strong pivot where we are going to have a U-shaped recovery into November, December at this point. It seems, Jason, the really only debate at this point is, is the Fed going to be done soon or not? Everything revolves around that. If the market believes, like it did a couple days ago or whatever, that the Fed's going to be done in December, great. If the market believes that the Fed's not, not so great. And if you listen to the local Fed speakers, uh, Kashkari, et cetera, you get the hawkish talk and it doesn't make the market feel all that good. Rates go up, stocks go down. Pretty simple. You got it, Scott. So for us, if, if we've kind of looked at the balance over the last couple of days, first of all, uh, you know, September was really rough, down 9.3 percent, worst September in 20 years. You know, and kind of looking at what happened with the BOE and obviously Australia showing some restraint from a policy perspective. I think that's what we saw from a bounce perspective and kind of feed it into this narrative about a pivot or a slowdown at some point soon. Uh, But to Bryn's point, I mean, you have to really believe not really what they say, but what they do. You know, so from my perspective, the Fed's still going to remain engaged as they have been. You know, if you're looking at PCE last week, 
uh, still was above his expectations, uh, albeit moderating. And then we have CPI next week, which is a very important number to follow. Yes, jolts were great, you know, down 10 percent month over month. But again, I, I just don't see a, an environment here or even in the near future where the Fed slows down. They're moving to restrictive policy. That's what's on the docket, and that's what they're going to do. Weiss, it, uh, it sounds like you wrote the Wolf Research note. You know, while stocks are currently prone to big upside rips, we strongly believe that our intermediate-term bearish case remains intact. Is that, is that fair, how you feel as well? It, it is how I feel. And uh, tomorrow, look, there's no way to really handicap tomorrow. It's going to be binary. If you see a jobs number that's disappointing, then the market will rip. Uh, however, those are short-term plays. If you look at the intermediate, and I think Bryn put it perfectly, uh, there are concerns. So just think about this. The, you know, the bulls keep coming out, and when they see the smallest move in the inflation number, or they believe that we're going to do what the UK do, which is reverse policy, uh, then they buy the market. But ask yourself this. The Fed made a clear mistake by saying inflation was transitory and inflation moved up and the Fed stuck to their guns. If inflation does come down from, say, 8% to 7%, the bulls are going to seize on that. They'll buy the market. But what they're going to lose sight of is that's not good enough for the Fed when your long-term target is 2%. So you've got to stay with it. I'd say there's no chance of them doing less than 75 bips at the upcoming meeting because they've said they're going to do 75 mm -hmm. and they're going to stay higher for longer. Okay. And then the final thing I'd say is it's really a two-part question. The first part, what's the Fed going to do? And the second part, what's the impact on the economy even after the Fed leaves? And to me, that's where the rubber really meets the road. And that's why the market is going to end up much lower than where it is today. GE came out and said, we're cutting 20% of the workforce. You keep having these cuts. So the Fed will get what they want on the labor side. But that's going to hit the economy. My bet is we do go into recession and you don't see real market recovery for at least a year. Yeah, I know. But, you know, Josh, you're not getting as earnings season really starts to put the gas to the floor. Well, that hasn't happened yet, but it's about to. ConAgra reaffirmed their guidance. McCormick reaffirmed their guidance. Constellation Brands raised the high end of the fiscal year. They didn't cut. They, they didn't cut. They didn't shift the low end. Um, maybe the situation isn't as dire as some paint it to be. Constellation is selling alcohol. They should not have an issue if uh, the economy is weakening or, or getting tougher on people. Um, Conagra is selling food. And go look at how they're making their numbers. They're raising prices. So it's great that they can do that. But for every 10% higher that consumers are spending at the supermarket, that's less money that they will have for things that actually really matter to the stock market. Um, and that hits things like advertising, which is basically what a lot of the fangs uh, and the big drivers of the indexes rely upon. So I agree with all of the comments that I've heard so far on the show. Um, and, and I would take it a step further. We're going to have a handoff from being worried about the Fed and how, how high they're hiking to an outright concern about the recession. That's what's coming next. So take a look at the jobs numbers. We just had four consecutive months of year-over-year -year increases in job cuts, up 68% in the month of September. That's building on up 30% year-over-year in the month of August. So the Fed is getting its way. The job cuts are coming, but the problem is they're coming from very specific parts of the economy, and they're not coming from others. 
And when you talk to small business owners, Judge, and the reason why this inflation is so sticky and the reason why it's going to take a while for the Fed to wrestle um, these issues to the ground is because if you remember how hard it was for employers in every sector to find workers, Mm -hmm. qualified workers or workers that were trainable, anything, it was so hard that even as the economy slips, and it is, um, those workers don't get fired quite so fast. Nobody wants to have to go through that again a year from now. So you're going to see a lot of employers, and I talk to the, you know people in, in small business owners, executives at large companies. You're going to find a lot of people say, yeah, you know what? In a normal economic slowdown, we probably would be doing cuts or doing bigger cuts than we're doing. But quite frankly... Uh, we see this as a, a short and shallow recession, not a financial crisis, and we're just not willing right. to let our our good people go that took us so long to find. And that's why the Fed's going to have to fight, um, you know, longer and harder than maybe some people have thought. Um, but but they are getting their way. Look at here, Shanghai to L.A. ocean shipping rates. Remember when bottlenecks no, and They're supply like chains? They're crazy down. When, They're crazy down. The, well. So, so we're looking at that rate, that particular rate I referenced, dropped below 3,000 for the first time since the summer of 2020. The high was last September a year ago at 12,400. You're down 75% in that shipping rate. So there are areas where the Fed has already had so much success that you could argue, hey, they, they should be done. Well, and probably they'll be cutting, but it's just not like that because of how complex this situation is. And honestly, I don't even know what we're rooting for anymore. Wow, well, no, unless bad they, news in the middle, news, good news. What unless they get what, it, a mar- what do markets even want? Unless they get it wrong Sorry, again. God. I mean, unless they get it wrong again with the you know the opposite of the transitory thing. They said that so many times, and it was obviously wrong. And now you hear nothing but there's no evidence that inflation has peaked. Maybe they get that wrong too. Steve Leisman is our senior economics reporter. He joins the conversation, and that's where I want to begin. Kashkari today, there's almost no, quote, almost no evidence that inflation has peaked. Um, With all due respect to the Minneapolis Fed president, where's he looking? I mean, the jolts numbers suggest that the labor market is coming back into balance. Container costs, Josh talks about that way, way down. Gas is way down. Lumber's way down. Housing prices are down. Rent inflation is on its way to peaking. Um, Used car prices are down. Chicken's down. Uh, I know inventories are up. Clothing prices are going to be coming down because there's a lot of inventory that's going to be cut in price and on and on and on and on and on. Yeah, I I don't think Kashgar is necessarily right about that, especially given the litany of data you just uh, laid out. My my best guess is he's looking most specifically at the PCE price index, which did show the core uh, uh, still being stubborn uh, and not peaking in that regard. The, The core PCE, less food and energy. Um, but I, I think you have to sort of go beyond that and say, well, what is he saying for policy there? He says he's no, no evidence inflation has peaked and he's not comfortable pausing until he sees that evidence uh, that inflation is cooling. Indeed, I think that the uh, the question becomes, uh, you know, if I had a chance to ask uh, Kashkari what he's looking at. And, and also, uh, Scott, I don't know if you want to talk about this yet, but uh, Bostic also yeah. saying these are early days. Still in, in the early days. Fight. What? I mean, still in the early days. Yeah. What? I mean, they've done three seventy-five basis point hikes. How are these the early days? Well, I guess in terms of the uh, total amount 
uh, of, of uh, uh, decline in inflation we've had and how much they think needs to be done. Um, look, uh, Scott, I think the key is that they have their eye on this level. And this level, Bostic lays it out for four and a half percent. The uh, median forecast for a Fed official is 4.6 percent. And I think when they say these early days, they're saying, look, this is where we're going. We're going into a restrictive territory and we're going there. Uh, I think Josh was talking about this irregardless of uh, what almost irregardless what happens with the unemployment uh, uh, rate or the economy. Here's a quote from uh, Bostic from his speech yesterday. I think is worth uh, pointing out if economic conditions weaken appreciably, for example, if unemployment rises uncomfortably, it will be important to resist the temptation to react uh, by reversing our policy course prematurely. And of course, Scott, that follows my questioning to um, uh, Loretta Mester, the Cleveland Fed president last week, where I said, if there's a recession, do you stop? And she basically said no. Right. I mean, Bostic, you know, he, he talks about getting to that level and then holding. Um, I want you to listen, Steve, to Eric Johnston of Kenner Fitzgerald, who was decidedly negative on the market and then came on overtime a couple of days ago and was a different person completely. And I want you to listen to one of the principal reasons of why he has changed his view. And I want you to react to it on the other side. Eric Johnston, let's listen. We're very bullish and our, and our conviction is very high. We think the Fed's last hike is going to be December 14th. So we're a mere two months away from this Fed hike cycle being over. And then the capitulation indicators have all shown up in the last 10 days where you had the VIX hit 34. Um, you've had the VIX curve invert. You've had the RSI go well below 30 and a number of others that all uh, suggest that we are going to have a sharp, uh, a sharp. Okay, let me- so I'll let my stock people, you hmm. know, get in on the market stuff. But what about the Fed stuff at the top? Yeah. December's it. December, they're going to do it and then they're going to wait. What do you think? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, let, let your uh, uh, terrific committee there uh, speak about the probabilities or the bullishness uh, uh, around that comment. But I'll say that's not a crazy idea. And interestingly enough, Bostic sort of mentioned it. You remember I asked uh, Powell about the possibility of a pause. He said now is not the time. Uh, it could be. Look, uh, what Bostic said today is he wants to get to the four, four and a half percent range. Worth looking at this point, uh, guys in the back, perhaps at the Fed rate outlook right now, which shows, I think, a 427 uh, number on the year end rate. And then it goes to 454. I think that 454 is probably not a given. Um, Weiss was talking earlier about there's no chance at all of there being a 50 in November. He's sort of right about that. I just would point out uh, mathematically there's a 17 percent chance of a 50, but it is 86 per 83 percent the other way. That, of course, is splitting hairs. And then they have a 50 built in uh, with an 80 percent probability of a 50 uh, for the December meeting. Uh, and then maybe there is an argument for a pause to see what uh, uh, effect they've had. There's a lot of folks you talk to, especially in the real estate market, the commercial real estate market, the residential real estate market, that say, look, um, uh, there's going to be some trouble out there. I talked to Rick Reeder earlier today, and I asked him about illiquidity in the bond market. And I said, Rick, if, if, if uh, a 10 uh, on the Richter scale is 2008, the financial crisis, and, and uh, March 2020, the pandemic, I, I said, what is it today? He says it's about a six. 
uh, in terms of illiquidity in the market. So it's something worth noting. He says some days you can place your paper and do just fine. Other days uh, there's illiquidity in certain parts of the market. Hmm. So maybe worth uh, having Rick on again with, with you guys. But we are monitoring this illiquidity thing, not ready to re ring the alarm bells on it. But you got to listen to it. What you really don't want to have happen is something break like happened in England. Uh, England may not be out of it. Who knows if they're going to be able to stop buying bonds next week to save the pension funds there. And that's the kind of thing. Maybe that's a black swan event you got to worry about over here that could certainly stop the Fed. I don't think he's crazy. I mean, maybe Johnson's off by a couple, three months and maybe a half a point. But I think this four and a half, four to four and a half percent range is something worth monitoring. When they get there, I expect the Fed to 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 go go uh, sort of flat, not raise anymore, and then hope that inflation comes down underneath that consistent rate because I think it'll be a while before the Fed reverses course. So, Bryn, then seventy-five in November. And let's just assume that then it's 50 in December, whatever it is. And then they do make the case that, OK, that's a lot. Right. I mean, we, we rattle off 75 here, 75 there, 75 everywhere as if it's an insignificant number at this point. It's already unprecedented to the point of you've done three huge ones in a row and you are likely going to do another 75, which shouldn't be uh, understated in, in any way, shape or form. But if they suggest that is Johnston right? If they make it clear or we get the idea that December is it, is that reason why stocks are going to they're going to take off ahead of that? They're not going to wait for word. So Fed funds right now, what, three and a quarter. So if we got a 75 and 25 or 50, 50, however you want to slice it, that puts you at four and a quarter by the end of the year. We're already in this uncharted water where the Fed has done the fastest rate hike from zero to four and a quarter. If that's where we get that that percentage change has never happened before. And so I, I agree with Eric if that does occur, which it should occur because they do need to wait and pause because they all know about the lag effect. I think if they continue to raise rates after December, that would be incredibly irresponsible because the reality is what they're doing. They can't control energy. They can't print energy. They can't do a lot of things with raising rates. And I think that they will stop. They will take note. But what's important, though, to Eric's to Eric's thesis is what does the economy look like once we get to December? So I would wait and see. I don't think I still don't think we're going to have this V-shaped rally back up to the highs or even close to that. I think we're going to have a ton of chop. But another one percent rate hike is all we could handle if we can if we can even handle that much. See, Steve, are they influenced? Hey guys, hold on real quick, Josh. Hold on real quick. I'm going to come. I'll come back to you. Um, Steve, are they influenced by by what's happened overseas? Do you think that's crept into the room uh, a little bit of uncertainty? I go to the reader, the Rick reader, six out of out of ten. I mean, you don't want to get to eight or nine. That, then it's past the point of return. If you've already broken it, you can't glue it back together all the time. It's, it's harder to do that. It doesn't look the same. I, it doesn't feel the same. Right. You're, you're right. And then what about what about Scott, the, the the impression that it gives that the Fed has to reverse course because it broke the bond markets? I mean, that's a real uh, institutional uh, issue for them. Uh, I, I'm, all I can say, Scott, is for sure they're watching overseas. I guess they are. I know they're communicating with their overseas uh, uh, colleagues over there, the head of central banks. Um, uh, I, I do know also that um, uh, they, they are monitoring U.S. markets on a consistent basis. Let me just say one thing that was uh, to the last comment that was made. 
which is the Fed might stop to look around because it's not sure how its rate hikes will play out on the economy, in the economy. Just to stay the hand of the bulls for a moment here, I know that mixes a metaphor, but anyway, to stay the hand, Scott, you also don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how all these rate hikes are going to walk through the are going to work through the economy. So I would say be very careful. I wouldn't say it's a green light. Perhaps it's a yellow light where there was a red, where you also want to be careful about how these Fed rate hikes play out the economy because there could be damage that's not immediately apparent. Well, I can guarantee you this: this is not going to have a stimulating effect, a stimulating effect uh, on the economy. That that that's for sure. Uh, Josh Brown, what do you want to say? I, I just I wanted to build on something that that uh, Bryn was saying, which I really I really agreed with her comments. Like we're going to have these these rips in the market. And the one that just took place was pretty notable. Um, it was the 12th time ever that this has happened. There have only been 11 other instances, but we had back to back gains of two and a half percent for the S&P 500. It's pretty rare uh, to happen beneath the 200 day moving average. But like, that's the whole point. So we're going to have these rips, but like the market gets turned away from the 200 day all the time this year. And until that changes, I don't think there's any reason that anybody should uh, change their mind from the current psychology and that lower high, lower low um, trap that we've been in really since January 3rd is, is still intact. Now, what, what, what's working? It's really not a complicated market to figure out. Um, you look at the sectors in the market where they have the highest percentage of stocks above that 200-day moving average, meaning the, the sectors that have the most stocks that are in a defined statistical uptrend. 80% of the energy sector is in an uptrend. So if you have to do something, like if you feel absolutely compelled to want to do something, that's like a target-rich environment. Uh, Staples is the, is the runner-up. Only 30% of staples are, are in an uptrend. Only 28% of healthcare are in an uptrend. That's the market that we're in. There are stocks that could have these massive one, two, three-day rallies, 20% off the lows in some cases, but they don't stick, and they're few and far between when you broaden out the charts right. any further uh, you know, than just the last seven days, 10 days. There are very few stocks in uptrends right now, and that is why I think... Um, th these rallies are all guilty until proven innocent. Yeah, fair point. Um, it's hard to argue uh, with that in any way, shape, or form. All right, let's do this. Leesman, thank you as always. Let's take a quick break. Uh, we're going to talk semis. They've been the standout performer in tech this week, up about 9% in just three days. Josh recently jumped into that group. As you know, we'll find out how he and the rest of the committee are thinking about that here. We got some moves today from Bryn and Weiss. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. 
Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We are back. I mentioned some of the moves being made by our committee today. Bryn, you bought the Innovator U.S. Equity Power Buffer ETF, the POCT. Tell me about it because I don't know anything about it. Yeah, these are from a firm called Innovator. These are interesting strategies. Definitely do your own research. They're actually do be doing simple put call spreads inside. And so they come out once a month. So on Friday, it's struck. And so what I get is I get over the next year, 15% downside protection from around, I think we closed on Friday at like 35.80. I get 15% downside, which puts me around like 30.30, but I also get 20% upside, which puts me well above like 40, almost 4,300. And these are ETFs, they're liquid and they trade and they come out of, you know, every month a new, so next month will be P November. And so because the markets are so volatile, the, the, the volatility is so high, I get this 15% downside, but still with 20% upside. It gives me the ability to put some money to work, but still, I do think there's a lot of unknowns happening. I get some downside protection. And so I thought it was a good way to put some money to work, but be more defensive and have a little bit of, I have quite a bit of a hedge. You're always dropping knowledge on us, Bryn, with these, with these moves. Uh, thank you for that. Steve Weiss. Uh, what, you cover your short in the core Europe ETF and the Vanguard S&P? T- tell me. I did. Well, uh, you know, I was net short. Uh, Friday was a, was a good day, made money Friday. And, and then when the market rallied, uh, you know, lost some dough. I didn't know how far the rally would go. So I basically flattened out uh, to be about neutral. So I still own, you know, PSQ, which makes me short the NASDAQ, which is more volatile. So I still have the same view. And, you know, I, I think there's we've got to look at the fundamentals a little bit and not so much the technicals. They're they're fine to look at those. But KPMG came out with a study just a couple of days ago, a, a survey rather, and 90 percent of CEOs see a recession and only a third of them believe that it's going to be short and mild. Furthermore, 46 percent said they're going to start reducing their labor force over the next number of months. So it doesn't matter if the Fed stops when you look intermediate term. Uh, what matters is what CEO is going to do. And they're saying the die is cast. I see it being a negative economy out there globally, and I'm going to act in front of it so I don't get caught off sides. Hey, Weiss, so, you, yeah. are you entertaining the idea at all that maybe we get a soft landing? I know you, you may ascribe well, a 10% chance to it, but... I mean, it, it, no, I, look, I, I think it's possible. But what I'm saying is markets really trade on direction and the direction is going to be negative for the economy. It doesn't trade in the final data point until you get there or you're within within touching it. So as long as it keeps going, this sniffs way, the it economy, out, I, sniffs well, it out in it, advance, though, not this far in advance is my is my view. That's why I say I think you have at least a year. So, look, you'll pop if Eric's right about 
if Eric's right about the Fed pausing, and I could see them pausing, they're not going to come out and say at a presser, hey, we stopped. They're going to say, look, we're going to be data dependent. So, yeah, you'll see these rallies. But overall, ultimately, the market's going to trade in valuation. And the valuation is still too high depending where I see earnings going. I mean, he might not say we stop, but he may say we feel like we're in a good place right now to you know, take a look around. And the market will rally. Of course. And then earnings will be reported. Speaking. And then the market will come down. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we talk semis. They're on a tear. We'll find out how the committee is playing that sector. Lots of ownership to go around. And we'll do that next. The U.S. needs to more than double its electricity transmission growth to reach the emissions cuts promised by the Inflation Reduction Act, according to a study from Princeton. Roughly 80 percent of the IRA's potential reductions in 2030 are lost if transmission expansion remains around 1 percent a year. Companies like American Electric Power, XL Energy, and PG&E could benefit from transmission expansion. That's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's our CNBC News update this hour. At least 20 people have died after a pair of boats carrying migrants sank off the coast of Greece. The two ships sank within hours of each other and prompted rescue efforts from Greek authorities and residents. Those boats were carrying passengers from Africa and the Middle East, and officials fear the death toll could rise. WNBA star Brittany Griner's wife, Sherelle, is speaking out for the first time after Brittany's sentencing for drug charges in Russia. Griner had been detained in Russia since February and was sentenced to nine years in prison in August. In an interview with CBS, her wife said uh, it seems like Brittany was a hostage and said she's worried about being forgotten. A Russian court will hear Griner's appeal in a few weeks. Thousands of Hungarian teachers, students and parents are protesting in Budapest in a fight for higher wages and the right to strike. Several teachers have been fired for protesting and groups have called for a nationwide teacher strike. Officials in Prime Minister Viktor Orban's office have said those strikes are not the way to reach a solution. Scott, I'll send it back to you. That's a thank you for that, Contessa Brewer. Chip stocks, they're outperforming this week. The group is now up 8% since Monday. Josh, I come to you first because you bought the SMH about a week or so ago, right? September 22nd. Yeah. Uh, look, it's, 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 it's okay. It's working out. Um, you know, I, I'm not really great at, like, short you know, short-term timing, and I don't typically buy things and then look to sell them five days later. Um, so this was just something that was part of a barbell strategy. I think in a market like this, if you are putting money to work, you want to uh, look for some things that are holding up really well. And I talked about energy in the last block. Uh, LNG is an example of a stock that's pennies away from uh, record highs. But then you also want to look at things that have been slaughtered. And semiconductor stocks are among the hardest hit, even among tech stocks. They, they, they've been 
really knocked down. Um, but they're not terribly expensive, and we understand it's a cyclical business, and I think a lot of that is being priced into the market. You look at the top 10 holdings of the SMH, take the number one holding, Taiwan Semi. It's 11% of the index. I think it's the most important company in the world. I actually think, like, like we're talking about, like, uh, Apple's making chips, this one's making... They're not making anything. They're designing chips. Taiwan Semi is making the chips. Um, these stocks will reach a point where a lot of bad news has been priced in. I don't know if that's happened yet, um, you know, to the point where you could say they've been de-risked. I would just say a lot of the risk has already come out of these stocks. Maybe not all, but I'm okay with that. I have to start early when I build positions because I'm not a trader. I'm really more of an investor. And I think this is going to be a good investment looking out a few years. Bryn, you own NVIDIA, and I see here you're looking at AMD. In what sense? Yeah, so I own NVIDIA. I haven't added to it yet just because I'm looking at it technically. And I feel this year I don't need to be a hero when I'm adding to a position and so I'm going to wait and hear what Jensen Wong says about the inventory glut that he talked about about six weeks ago. Um, with Lisa Su, I think she's another, I want to bet on the jockey there. And so I think between Jensen Wong and Lisa Su, they are phenomenal you know, CEOs. The charts on both still look so bad that I'm just going to wait because they continue to make, just like the S&P, these lower highs and, and higher lows. But I definitely think going out a few years, at some point, I'll probably buy the, you know, I'm going to wait till they, I think, move lower after earnings. But at some point in the next quarter or so, I look to add AMD because I do think there's structural structural tailwinds on both companies. Jay Snipe, you got NVIDIA as well. You got Qualcomm, too. Uh, what do you think? You feeling a little bit better about them here or not? You guys got so I think, you know, to, to Josh's point, I mean, these names have been slaughtered uh, all year. I mean, up until last week, obviously, we saw a run this week, but the SMH was down north of 40 percent. So I think. To, to Bryn's point as well, I mean, inventory is going to continue to be a problem. Um, but, you know, I think these are just oversold conditions. They got a nice bounce this week. They're cyclical stocks, so it makes sense to me. But, you know, for me, I, I, I'm going to watch them very closely. You know, not enough volatility for me to kind of move on either one of them, NVIDIA or Qualcomm. I'll still hold them in our portfolio. But, uh, you know, I, I'm anxious to see, you know, what earnings looks like and, and how, how they've dealt with inventories going forward. All right, Steve Weiss, I mean, you've been short the SMH from time to time. Are you more inclined to be short or, or long and play for a bounce because it has gotten so, hit so hard? They have. And candidly, uh, if I had a more positive view in the market or a positive view, semis is probably the first place I'd go to. Um, because they have gotten beaten up. But you take a look at Micron, and as bad as they thought it was for Micron, they came out and they said, hey, it's just not good. So what drove a lot of the semis, and I used to be very long, as you recall, is also the pandemic, when so many bought equipment for the home. It also was driven by cars. Now auto sales are falling off, and the end market post-pandemic for consumer electronics, et cetera, is coming down. So so, look, there's candidly not a day that goes by that I don't think, hey, maybe I should dip my toe in the water. And it would be AMD and it would be Qualcomm. But I also think I'll get a better price. And my philosophy continues to be with each group and with the market overall is that I'd rather miss 10 percent upside than lose more on the downside. All right. The big banks, they are getting ready to report earnings. Believe it or not, we kick it off next week. And the number one banking analyst on the street is slashing estimates ahead of those numbers. We're going to debate it and find out how the committee is positioning. We'll do it next.
Oh, we're about a week away from when the big banks kick off earnings season. Wells Fargo's Mike Mayo cutting estimates today on a number of uh, those names heading into the results, uh, which is interesting. Goldman, he cuts. Morgan, he cuts. Citi cuts. JPM, Bank of America. He lowers estimates across the board uh, for, for the most part there. Uh, Josh Brown. I say it's interesting because I think it was a delivering alpha when we had a conversation on overtime where you repitched J.P. Morgan. How do you feel coming into earnings season? Yeah, look, my my attitude on J.P. Morgan is that it's going to be a difficult environment. Thanks. Like everyone gets that. This was a hundred and seventy dollar stock that fell to uh, one oh four or one oh five. So at one oh eight, I'm very comfortable buying this name. It's cheaper than it's been historically. It's not the cheapest of the banks, but that's not what you want to do going into a recession. I think you want to own fortress balance sheet companies in this space and companies that always find a way to take advantage of uh, turmoil and other people's uh, troubles. And JP um, historically has been that company. So you're getting a 3.62% dividend yield while you wait. Absolutely, there could be more downside. If the recession is severe, you're gonna, you're, you're certainly going to see the stock back below 100. But that's what investing is. It's, it's understanding what the potential risks are and deciding if the potential reward is worth bearing that kind of risk. So I think JP is good here. Um, and, uh, and, and that's why I was talking about it. And I still feel that way even after the bounce. I'm looking on Twitter. Weiss is obviously ghost tweeting himself saying that he should have more airtime, that I should call more on you. <laughs> so I'll call on you right now. How about that? Now we're good. I mean, if you hate the market so bad and you think the worst of the economy is yet to come. Wait, is he seriously doing that? No, no, I just made that no. up. Somebody actually is saying I <laughs> oh. should call on him more. All right. Which I'll debate oh anytime. Uh, I don't think it was one person, but go ahead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bank of America and Goldman Sachs, right? Seriously, if, you, if yeah. you hate the market as much as you do, right, and you think that the worst of the economy is still yet to come, and you've gotten out of a lot of other things, why are you still in the banks? Well, I, I reduced the positions, and selling more, which has a much lower cost, uh, which I bought relatively early, uh, would cost me a lot in taxes, and I don't think they'll go down enough to uh, to compensate for the tax bill. Look, the capital markets business in terms of issuance, both in the private market, where I'm quite active, and in the public market, is grind to a halt. So those are the highest margin businesses. What they, The lever they have is in compensation, and that generally has been anywhere from 48 to 52% of revenues. So they ratcheted down trying times. Additionally, their loan books, which never really got off the ground to the extent you would think uh, during the whole boom, uh, will is gonna compress further. And the spreads have of course narrowed with the inverted yield curve. So I don't think there's a lot to like there, uh, but on a price to book basis, and because they've been very, uh, I would say risk averse, partly their own doing and partly the regulators doing, I think they're okay. I don't expect them to go up much. I ex don't expect them to go down a lot. Okay. Uh, well, but I'm staying there. I don't want to pay taxes. And that's it. It's not where I would go right now, Scott, which is probably a more direct answer to your question. Right. I know it took you a while to get there, but I appreciate uh, your indirectness and well, then directness. People want to hear from me. So I stretched <laughs> Obviously. <that. laughs> uh, Bryn, this is not where, where you want to be, is it? No, I mean, I own, I own Goldman. I think what Steve just finished up with, this is not where you want to go right now. If, as I do, I believe we are late stage cycle. Now, as a positive, these stocks, the financial sector has done a full round trip 
and is either right at or below its February 2020 levels. So there's been a lot of carnage. But I do think an inverted yield curve is a challenge because you want to have a positive sloping yield curve so you can capture the spread from lending. And I do think as the consumer slowing, just the late stage playbook is like financials don't do particularly great. But I wouldn't be totally out of these. I own Goldman. I'm not selling it. I will just wait till later on next year Mm -hmm. where I feel like where we are in the economy, where we're not late stage, and then you add to the position, I think would be a more opportune time to average down in these names. All right. Stay with us. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. Mike Santoli joins us on the other side with his midday word. And to celebrate Hispanic heritage, CNBC is featuring our teammates and contributors. Here is Saul Trujillo. He is Agua Media chairman. The punchline here is that the Latino cohort generates $2.7 trillion of GDP. And when we think about the significance of labor force providing 80% of net new workplace entrants, growing consumption at 2x the rate of the rest of the economy, something that any investor, any executive, any person that's thinking about the sustainability of our competitiveness in this country should be aware of, think about, invest in, and catalyze. Welcome back. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us from the New York Stock Exchange with his midday word. What are you thinking about today? Well, kind of just killing time here in the market, uh, Scott, at least for today, ahead of the jobs number tomorrow within yesterday's range. I think, you know, we were able to look at yesterday's mini comeback from a a loss of like 1.8 percent in the S&P in the morning and say at least it showed uh, that we're not going to disgorge the uh, the two day rally in a hurry. Clearly, the market would love to see whatever kind of not too painful softening of the labor market uh, we can uh, get from the jobs number tomorrow. Unemployment, the Fed thinks, has to go up on some level, some way. Uh, by doing that uh, without a big loss of jobs or without a big deceleration in job growth, maybe that's the, uh, the best hope at this point. Because the Fed speak, we've survived uh, a huge two weeks of Fed speak at this point. And it's not giving a lot of fresh information. It's a lot of reiteration of what they've been saying for a while. Uh, and they're going to speak this way until the very minute they feel like it's clear to, to, to pause. So it's, it's hard to say that there's incremental marginal information in, in every uh, speech at this is, point. Is the worst part of this uh, rally that we had this week, and I put worst in quotes, the fact that it was so much so fast? Well, it certainly kind of raises the stakes for coming to an assessment to say, was this just some kind of mechanical snapback at the beginning of the quarter? Is that a good or a bad thing that it happened as the month and the quarter started, right? Could that just really tell you uh, that things got unusually uh, washed out and the, and the, you know, the slingshot was pulled back really far at, at Friday's close? I don't know. I think a lot of the breath numbers are telling you to give the very short term the benefit of the doubt that there was real money that came in in the vicinity of the June lows. We never really decisively broke too far below them. Uh, Maybe it's close enough to say, for now, uh, that it's a potentially decent retest. All right. We'll see you in OT uh, for your last word. That's Mike Santoli at the Stock Exchange. Up next, cyber stocks gaining 6% this week. And there's a bullish call out on some of the big names in that group today. The committee debates those next.
let's do some calls of the day now. Jason Snipe, I come to you first today because Evercore ISI, they say Palo Alto Networks is outperformed. $207 is the price target. 17% upside. You own that one. Absolutely. So unfortunately, cybersecurity crimes aren't going anywhere. I mean, Palo Alto had a really nice quarter last quarter, reported over 50% EPS growth, 27% uh, revenue growth, and then looking forward, it implied 25% revenue growth going forward. So, you know, I really like the stock here. It's performed well on a relative basis, only down about 5%. So, you know, pricey stock, 55 times forward, but I think there's still an opportunity here. Josh, Netflix outperformed 325, Cowan, 38% upside. Has a story turned here? This this stock refused to make a new low with the rest of the market a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's really just acting like an absolute horse. Looks like it's about to uh, make a new day high right now. I really like the way it's behaving. Major catalyst coming up with the ad platform. So I'm, I'm hopeful this will turn into a better trade than the last time I, I was in Netflix. Uh, Snipe, back to you. Target reiterated a buy 205 at Goldman Sachs. That's 30 percent. 30% upside when there's some serious questions about retail right now, whether it's inventories, margins, economy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, as you said, Scott, I mean, the inventory issue is going to continue to be in the front view mirror. You know, Target's trading at 23-ish times, you know, so it's still, uh, you know, premium to the marketplace. You know, I don't, I don't love retail right now, but out of, out of the players in the space, I think, you know, uh, Target, Target could do well. So, you know, that's just my quick take there. Okay. Uh, Costco, right? They reported same-store sales up 8.5%. Slight deceleration from last month overall was, was pretty good, um, if that's any read into, into anything. Jason, thank you. Quick break. Final trades are next. All right, OT, 4 p.m. Eastern. How much more is in this rally? Jonathan Krinsky, pretty, pretty good chartist. He's a technician we rely on to tell us those types of things. He's going to join us. Adam Parker as well on what he thinks lies ahead just with earnings season right around the corner. Let's do final trades in the minute we have left. Bryn Talkington, you are first. Uh, Freeport, FCX. In the short term, I think China will reopen after the October 16th election. Now, in the second long term, uh, a three megawatt wind turbine uses 4.7 tons of copper. FCX is my trade. All right. I think Joe Terranova just bought that the other day, which he said on overtime. Jason Snipe, what do you have for us? Yeah, Scott, I like Broadcom here. It's trading at 12 times forward. Really like the VMware acquisition and, you know, a little over 6% free cash flow yield. I like this name here. Okay. Josh Brown, what do you have? Uh, Netflix overhead resistance is 249. If she can take that level out, we'll be firmly in the gap. And that's where things could get really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that stock's been on a nice run, of course, down from 700 bucks. So whatever. Steve Weiss, the man who tweets about Cash. himself. Yeah. <laughs> what do you got? Cash, and I'll, <laughs> uh, and I'll tell you why. First of all, my favorite topic. So, of course, I'm tweeting about myself. All right, go ahead. Quick. Cash, I'll tell you why. If the jobs number is below 200,000 meaningfully tomorrow, I will deploy some because I think you'll see a trade and go on for a couple of weeks. All right. And if it's well above it, then I'm going to be glad I'm holding well, it. Well, you know, you got to apologize to the exchange because you took some of their time, which begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. 
can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.